All right. Welcome, everyone. This is episode two of the Good Sheep podcast. Got an excellent show prepared for you today. Um, not going to lie, it's a little bit off the cuff. It's a little bit, well, I said that last time, everything is off the cuff here. It's pretty improvised, unscripted today because I've had a very busy week. I have a very busy week ahead of me and I want to prioritize this. Uh, so I just had to force myself to sit down and get this done. Although I do have a f- definitely a few things planned today. Um, some news. I have a little bit of an updated camera. Obviously, the set is still gross looking. It's still my living room. Although, Jesus over here makes everything better. And But I did get a new iPhone recently. Um, a friend of mine hooked me up. So I've got, uh, I've got a little bit better visuals for you to see my pretty face with. Uh, I've also set up a Patreon account officially, so you can go to uh, patreon.com slash goodsheep94, and I've just got one tier set up there. It's like three bucks a month, something like that, and what that gets you is access to the sheep pen. (laughs) I'm seeing how ridiculously cringy I can get with this whole sheep uh, aesthetic brand, you know what I mean? Uh, and what the sheep pen is, is it's like an exclusive club. You get to have access to a exclusive Patreon members only stream where you and I can talk, you and I can converse, you can ask questions, uh, and we can hang out, we can just chat, whatever it is that we decide to do. It's, uh, it's our business and no one else's. So, that's some updates for you this week. So I'm uh, happy to get this show rolling. I want to talk about a few things today. First of all, I want to talk about why the concept of faith itself is actually very reasonable. Another thing I want to talk about is in my segment of Theology is Metal, talk about a very particular badass Bible story um, that's pretty insane when you first read it, but is also just hilarious. <laughs> Uh, and the third topic for today is we're going to be watching a video together class, okay? It's nice, some fun class time today where we get to watch a little video. A little viral video from back in, oh man, when was this uploaded? Uh, 2012. Actually, that's earlier than I, than I thought. I thought this was uploaded to YouTube when it went viral, like, earlier than that, like 2009. Um, but it's going to be the why, why I hate religion, but love Jesus spoken word. Okay. So, or is this the sequel? Hold on a second. Nope. That's the original. Great. So we're going to be watching that video together and, uh, criticizing it, reacting to it, if you will. Finally, for ecumenical council, we're going to be talking about apostolic succession and what the deal is with the bishops in the Catholic church And there are some Protestant churches, denominations, that have uh, bishops. Why, what's what's the deal with this monarchical hierarchical structure of these uh, high liturgy churches? Why, where do they come from? Why do they exist? So, hope hope you guys enjoy the show today. I'm just going to take a sip of coffee. So, why is faith reasonable? We hear this a lot from the more secular types, our secular friends, our more scientifically bent uh, folks, that the reason why they don't believe in God is because you can't, it's not testable. And in fact, actually, they might say, we have tested it. Um, I can't, the fact that I can't see, smell, taste, you know, touch God, all those, sen- I can't, I, the, the fact that I can't use my senses to detect God that is a scientific test that disproves the existence of God. Okay, interesting. Um, what I find often, though, with these extreme secular anti-philosophy types, and, and I'm jumping to that, actually, they, they tend to be very anti-philosophical, uh, anti-higher thought. That doesn't mean they're stupid, not at all. They, they can be very smart people, but... They're smart and they're experts in their own field, which is science, and science is not everything. There are plenty of things that science can't prove, and yet we accept completely 
um, just without questions, uh, such as the a concept of morality, right? Science cannot prove that something is objectively wrong or objectively good. The, only, the best they can get to is to say that there are things that are helpful for our evolutionary growth and things that are unhelpful for that. That's the absolute best you can do. You cannot come up with a objective moral structure on the basis of science alone. And yet we all there are things that we all unanimously agree are objectively wrong, even if there were some sort of reality where the majority or all people would believe, for instance, rape is a good thing, we would we would actually think that everybody who thinks, even if it's every human in existence, that if they, if they think rape is good, they're actually wrong. Rape is wrong. It, it, there's, no, there's no exceptions, right? There are things that are just completely unexceptionally evil, intrinsically evil, we would say. Science can't prove that. Another thing that science can't prove is science itself, that our method of doing science actually works, actually displays the truth in the physical universe. What do I mean? How, how is that possible? Well, there's a kind of a wacky idea that we get from a popular film released in the early 2000s called The Matrix, where there is a possibility that everything you experience and test on Earth, taste, touch, smell, see, experiment with, interact with, anything at all that you interact with in reality, could all just be fake. It could all just be a simulation that you're living in. Um, you know, think think of the Matrix, right? Um, even more philosophically deep, there are these things called Boltzmann, uh, Boltzmann's brains, which essentially is a mind that is created with um, memories and uh, feelings and sense sensations. However, all this mind is is just an instance of random chemicals mashing together, creating this perfect soup, chemical soup, uh, to create a consciousness for however brief of a second that comes along with it all of these memories of their whole life, right? And statistically speaking, given the length of eternity, this, this concept of eternity and this concept of infinity, it's actually more likely that all of us are just um, figure, uh, figures of our own imaginations. Like we're just Boltzmann brains. Everything is just um, fake and just created in an instant. And uh, really, it's just while passing by. That is actually more statistically likely than billions and billions of years rolling around uh, for perfect conditions of the earth to be created and to have life start, first of all, very unlikely, and then evolve, very unlikely, into a complex organism called the human being who can now test and do science. That is so much more improbable. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating against evolution or what the scientific community um, proposes. I believe science, and I actually believe in evolution. Maybe maybe I should have made this a topic about young earth creationism, but that is definitely to come. Um, but the point is, is that there are plenty of things, plenty, plenty, plenty of things. Look outside and see how many things science can't explain because science cannot explain whether or not reality itself is real, okay? So what does that leave us with? Well... I like to say that there are three things that we can know completely um, and, and have no doubt about whatsoever. By the way, science, etymologically, the, the, the word itself means knowledge. So what can we know? And so actually these, I, these philosophical thoughts are part of science. They used to be at least. Now we've separated the two, the sciences, we've separated them out. Um, but when we say science nowadays in our Western culture, we just think of, you know, biology, chemistry, etc. But there are three things that we can know for sure. Three science that we can, th that we can have. The first one is that we are experiencing something, or at least I am. I don't know if, like I said, this might all be fake. You might be fake listening to this right now. But... I am at least experiencing something, okay? And let's assume that you listening 
you know, you can say this as well, because I'm, I am going to assume that you're real. <laughs> so we can all say that we are experiencing something, whether it's fake, whether it's not entirely what I assume it to be. I am experiencing something that I, I have sensations of touch, taste, smell, whatever, even if they're all inventions of my brain and I'm living in a simulation, I am experiencing something. Therefore, you know, I am a conscience. I, I am a person. Okay. So all this to say is I do exist. Some part of me does in fact exist. Okay. That's number one. That's the number one thing that we all can know. The second thing that we all can know is that because I at least know one thing that is true, that is objectively undebatably true, then that means objective truth does in fact exist. Okay. So objective truth exists. I exist. Okay. What else do we know? Well, the third thing I would say we know absolutely without a doubt is that we don't know anything else at all. Okay. <laughs> we don't know anything else at all. Uh, other than those three things, that I exist, objective truth does exist, even though I might not know what it is, and that third thing is I absolutely, I don't know anything else without some level of faith, and that is why faith is completely reasonable, because in order for you to do science, in order for you to do social studies, in order for you to do philosophy, in order for you to do math, there is a level of trust you have to have in what you are experiencing, that it is at some level real or meaningful, right? So that's why faith is completely reasonable. Um, the people who would deny this, I find it pretty hard to deny this once you go through, you know, this whole, the, all of these premises. So, so like I said, the people who deny this kind of philosophical thought that don't get to this, you know, don't, that don't ask these kinds of questions, that don't think about these kinds of things, um, what I like to bring up for them is like, okay, listen, dude, understand you're like an amoeba in this Petri dish, right? Let's call the Petri dish, the universe itself, right? And you're a little amoeba. Okay. Now, you know that cause you've studied Petri dishes, you've studied cells and organisms, microorganisms, right? You know that that little cell has a very limited capacity to explore the world around it, right? Now, let's say that little cell is able to get to the very edge of that Petri dish and it has explored everywhere throughout that whole Petri dish. It would be pretty arrogant of that little single cell organism to say, oh, this is it. I've discovered everything. There is absolutely nothing outside of this petri dish this is all there is um there is nothing outside of what i perceive to be reality itself we would say um sorry mr amoeba but you're a little bit of an idiot a little bit of a dunce um that is just stupid to think that now i don't advise you going to say that to your secular friends i wouldn't say that either but the fact is that's pretty stupid <laughs> and I would hope that if you are that kind of person listening to this, that you would get on board. It's like, yeah, that is pretty stupid because to assume that this universe or even the, let's say the multiverse, right? There's, let's say there's multiple universes and we're in some kind of Marvel comic book that we can travel between, uh, different universes to even to say, okay, there is nothing outside the multiverse, right? Um, that's basically to say that you, I have explored everything there is to explore and there's nothing else. That is to elevate yourself up to God's place, right? So the reality is so long as there is a possibility of something else existing that you don't know about, um, you have to trust that you have, that, that your faith is reasonable, that um, what you're doing with your time and with your efforts has meaning has purpose and that it it isn't meaningless and that you're going somewhere and that should beg the question like well what is it all for right so i think those are things to think about um don't be discouraged christians when 
people try to belittle you because all you have is faith. Well, that's the reality of everyone. All everyone has is faith. It's just a matter of what do you have faith in? Because, again, all we can know is we exist, that there is objective truth, even though we might not know what it is, and that we know nothing else at all. So, basically, everything is faith. So, there you go. Now, we're going to move into our next segment, and we're going to talk about a pretty crazy Bible story. From 2 Kings chapter 2, if you would like to open up your Bibles, that would be pretty cool. 2 Kings chapter 2, I think you know where this is going if you're familiar with this story. Um, and we're going to go to verse, uh, verse 19. Verse 19, because we want some context for this story, right? 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, I'll give you another moment while I drink my coffee. Of course, you could just listen to me read it. So here we go. 2 Kings chapter 2, 19. Onward to the end of the chapter. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water so the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and, to, and tore forty-two of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. <laughs> okay, so a couple things about that. That's hilarious. It's just funny. Like, the story is about how Elisha has taken over the uh, being the prophet, the anointed prophet of God from Elijah, okay? And... Uh, he's he's blessing this water he's he's cleaning it uh so that people can benefit from it in a variety of ways and now he's traveling um from where he was up to bethel and while he's on this pilgrimage some boys just come and start making fun of how little hair he has so he curses them in the name of the lord and from there he went on to mount carmel <laughs> like it's just it pays no mind to the, rea the, the the gruesome reality this would have been. I want you to imagine just like, you're just a group of boys. Let's imagine 50, because it says 42 of the boys, okay? So this is a big gang. This is a big club, uh, a frat, if you will. Let's imagine like a group of middle school, high school boys, grade 8, grade 9 uh, boys. Pre first of all, pretty large group of boys. I don't know a, a, a group of, of friends that is uh, as big as at least 42. <laughs> That's a lot to manage. I can't imagine that these 42 boys were very close, <laughs> which is why the ones who were left alone by the two she-bears probably didn't think very much of it. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was hoping to get rid of Elish. Uh, uh, I, was, I was hoping to get rid of uh, Jerubabel for that mean thing he said to me the other day. I didn't really like him that much anyways. So it's just so abrupt. And so you're they're just this this huge frat of 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 kids is making fun of this this grown man, this prophet. Doesn't sound like a very merciful, loving, kind person and yet in the name of the Lord just like two she bears come out of the woods and just slaughter them. I think that's hilarious. And I think that shows us um, how badass God is, because you cannot even get away with making fun of one of the guys he backs. It's pretty crazy. Uh, you don't get away with it, even if you're an innocent little boy. 
Um, I wonder what going home to mom and dad would have been like after seeing 42 of your best friends <laughs> get mauled to death by a couple of she-bears. All right, so now I want to spend some time on this video, why I hate religion but love Jesus, because I, even though this is an old video and it's not at all in the viral site anymore, what this video taught evangelicals that I grew up with and still encounter today, it's, it's, it is, it still f permeates, I, I guess you could say. Like it still influ it still influences a lot of the things that I encounter Christians believing today that are just it's just totally bogus. Um, so let's let's start by reacting, I guess right right away to the title why I hate religion. Well, why do you hate religion? What what do you understand religion to be? But love Jesus. But Jesus loved religion. He, he practiced a religion called Judaism. Um, like, seven times a day, at the ring of the bell, or I should say the horn, uh, at, the, at the sound of the horn, he would face east. No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't face east. That's a Christian thing, isn't it? Uh, but, he, but the point is, seven times a day, he would join with his fellow Jews, his <laughs> fellow Jews in prayer. Like, this was a daily liturgical thing that they would do. Um, he would have gone with his parents to the temple every year and to offer animals for sacrifice. And he, partic he participated in all of this. Like, Jesus was a religious man. Also, his name wasn't Jesus. It was Yeshua, if you want to get particular about how intimate you are with him. Um, I know, that's not fair. But you, you see what I mean? It's like, I find that videos and stances like this tend to come from people who are very religious and don't know it. Um, because to be religious, what does being religious mean? It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, but at its core, it just means that you're following with a culture, a spiritual culture, with its own set of practices and history and reasons why they do this or that that there's nothing inherently wrong with religion in fact james loves religion explicitly where he says that this is right religion feeding and caring for the orphan and the widow so i don't know we're just by the title alone we're kind of off to a bad start here picking this apart and kind of how misinformed this this idea is so let's hit play eerie music pause okay jesus greater than religion i mean yeah i mean jesus above all things but what if there was a religion that Jesus established. Because if Jesus is greater than all things, then I wouldn't be, I would be contrasting the, the movement or religion, the set of practices established and rooted in history in a context. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be bashing that. I got a fly in my room right now. See, the fly does not like this either, guys. Um, okay, let's move on. What I if like I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if... Hmm. Okay, Jesus came to abolish religion. Jesus came to abolish sin. He didn't come to abolish religion. If he did that, like I mentioned before, I mean, he set one up right afterwards. He did a pretty bad job of abolishing, of, of abolishing religion. Um... Maybe he abolished a certain kind of religion, 
a religion that was anti mosaic law because it was pro tradition of man right um perhaps he came to abolish a religion that was built by man not by god or at least one that god did make and was twisted by man and actually maybe he came to continue forth that very same religion in its new covenantal purposes that everything that came before it was geared towards which is exactly what we read in the new testament uh, this is the reality of the old covenant is that it is not done away with it is part of our heritage it is part of our spirituality and we should revere it and treat it as such while also recognizing that its fulfillment is in the new in the new covenant it's what every it's the whole god purposed everything towards this so no, I don't think Jesus came to abolish religion. I think that's quite clear in the scriptures. And as for voting Republican, yeah, I mean, not all Republicans are Christians, but all Christians are Republican. If I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision. I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single... Okay. Uh, there's a lot to react to there. Um, <laughs> why has it started so many wars? Uh, very few wars in, in light of all of human history were started over religion explicitly. I mean, yeah, religion was involved in a war, like you would include your god in going to battle, but it wasn't like... The, the sole purpose of the war was for your religion to conquer their religion. Um, that has, that has happened. Absolutely. But it has not, that has not been the case for so many wars. So completely historically inaccurate. Uh, most wars are just over resources and property and wanting to obtain those. That's why wars are, are fought. What was the other thing you said? Uh, Republican. Yeah, we covered that. Um, let's still rewind Automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision. I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches, but fails to feed right. the poor? So, religion has been the number one distributor of charity ever, particularly the Catholic Church. Uh, we, f we feed more people and clothe more people, and rescue more people than any other global organization. Sounds like a pretty good religion to me. The poor. Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Um, I'm sad that that is the case for some people. I would never tell God uh, a divorced woman that God doesn't love her. That's, that's that's really sad. I'm with you on that, buddy, but I don't think that's a staple of religion. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't... And what was John the Baptist? He was a pretty religious nut job. He told people to repent of their sins, lest they be damned. Sounds like a pretty religious fire and brimstone preacher <laughs> fix their problems and so they just mask it not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket see the problem with religion is it never gets to the core it's just behavior modification like a long list of chores like ah okay so it's like a long list of chores behavior modification um there are things you have to do in order for your faith to be real again the, the letter of james makes this very clear now Obviously, we don't want it to become just a checklist of things, but there is a checklist of things. But it's not just a checklist of things. It is a checklist of things, but it's not just a checklist of things. You see what I'm saying? So, like, you do need to do things. You, 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 you should be participating in the faith collectively and being held accountable. Um, 
another thing this guy is talking about or heavily implying is a very me and Jesus personal relationship, exclusively personal relationship, because Christianity is a personal relationship, but it is not just a personal relationship. I actually prefer the term covenantal relationship because you, by being a Christian, you are brought into a family, a saved family. Uh, and you have to be held accountable and you have to hold others accountable and you all have to be journeying together towards holiness because to have faith and not do anything is not faith at all. It's just a mental assent. Uh, it's like being like, imagine being married and telling your wife over and over again, I love you. I love you. I love you. And you literally, and you don't do anything for her. It's like, no, you don't love me. And it's not about the doing. The doing comes because you can't help yourself because you love your wife so much. It's like, oh, I love you so much. Oh, I want to squeeze you. I want to do the dishes for you. <laughs> like it's 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 a compelling or, or, you know, a mother and her child. It's like, I love this little baby so much. Like it, I'm giving all of myself for my kid. It's like, you can't say that it's love if if she is just neglecting the child and like loving it from afar while it's in the casket and I'm on the and she's on the couch and it's like oh yeah just grow yourself and feed yourself and no as a person who loves if you really love you are compelled by your own heart by your own love to do stuff it's quite I don't real I don't know why I'm explaining this it's just so intuitive Dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Okay, so the beauty, the exterior beauty of religion, um, I love it. It's great, it's fantastic. You know who also loves it? God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament particularly, who gave very specific instructions on how the priests were supposed to dress themselves, how each part of the tabernacle was to be built, um, in Revelation, we see that God is very particular about the kind of jewels he uses to decorate the gates of heaven, right? It's like God loves beauty because he made it. Um, Jesus also said that we'll always have the poor with us. So it, it's amazing how the greatest uh, institution in the world, the Catholic Church, um, happens to be the most charitable with the poor and as well decorate its uh, it's it's sacred sites the most beautifully right it's there's 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 lots of money to go around in the catholic church absolutely no doubt about it but this idea that every single dollar needs to be spent uh trying to fix a earthly problem that will pass away with christ's second coming which he promises will always be present until then aka the poor rather than you know Maybe splitting the bill in half and spending some of that money on creating beautiful places of worship that include the presence of the poor and bring them into the spiritual ascent into awe and wonder of God's glory that he created through the hands and workmanship of his devout followers to display theological messages through art um, and bring your heart and soul into those places of, of high places of heaven. Um, I ain't seen nothing wrong with that. That's pretty special, I think. And we shouldn't do away with that. So, so far, I love religion. Now I ain't judging. I'm just saying, quit putting on a... You're not judging? Bro, that's all you're doing right now. <laughs> you're, you're judging the people you perceive to be judging you. And that's a whole other rant, which I have no problem with judging people. Jesus didn't either. That's a misconception. But uh, you're judging wrongly, my friend. Fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too. Okay, so I get what he's saying here. It's like you just have this exterior label as a Christian. And you don't actually do anything loving. I mean, it's funny. Like, now we're literally describing religion. As soon as you have expectations of tasks to be done, you've now, for, for a spiritual reason, you've now, 
you're now describing religion. So that's what, exactly what he's doing here. He's saying that people who wear the label but don't do anything loving uh, are not really Christians. Well, how do you know that? Because he's judging them on by a religious standard. So it, it's completely backwards. But no one seemed to be on to me, acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. Mm. See, I spent my whole life building Spittin this facade facts. of neatness. But now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my... A museum. What did he say? I blanked out. <laughs> so Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Boast in your weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people. It's a hospital for the broken. Museum for good people. Is he implying that these people are these good people are also dead? Um, I don't really get that one. It is a hospital for the broken. I mean, like both. So many. So much of this is both and. It's like you. You can have both. This is what I'm saying. It's like you can have Jesus and religion. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus, and be religious. In fact, I would say one requires the other. Because to truly have a relationship with Jesus is to be practicing the religion he started. Because he wants you to do that. Because he says, if you love me, you will follow my commands. And. To be religious, truly religious, is to love and care about the things Jesus loves and care about, uh, and to have a personal relationship with Him, like what and 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 therefore do things that James describes, such as loving and doing things out of love for those who are in need. Um, so they both go hand in hand here. I don't, I don't, I still don't see it. Which means I don't have to hide my failure. I don't have to hide my sin, because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy and certainly not a fan, he looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? <sighs> I'm just repeating myself here. Like, he just asserts that Jesus hates religion without thinking that actually um, they go hand in hand. I actually noticed a comment here about someone. Oh, he's just saying that he loves, it's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Well, it's a little bit of both. Now, let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men, but the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. So it's, he's equating, and and maybe he actually believes everything that I'm saying in critique of his video, um, because, I mean, I, I don't really, I can't really see this to be a reasonable thesis, but it's the lack of clarity that he's presenting this argument in, because any person who just hears this thinks, yeah, screw the church, um, and all of like the beauty of it and all of the institutionalization of it. Like those are all actually good things. Um, because they go again, like they go, I just back to the point. like you can back to the point. Like again, like you can, you can have love and all of this stuff. You can have exactly what you're talking about, dude. And all of the religious stuff. Like it's not there. Your experience of it doesn't um, make sense of the logic that you're saying, right? Like, I, I understand maybe you had a bad experience with religious people, and a lot of people do, but that doesn't um, break down the true value of religion itself. It's a great thing. One thing is vital to mention how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. No. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. No! Again, I'm going to take, I'm taking this, like, just word for word, criticizing the the, the, the ink on paper argument. Jesus and, re and religion, they're, they're polar opposites. Again, Jesus started a religion, uh, Christianity. 
and followed one as well and loves both and each one he told like for instance sermon on the mount is full of instructions on how to live a kingdom life that's religion if we fast forward a little bit into into church history like around you know what the time that the book of acts was written um we also have something called the didache which is a first century document that tells us what the early church believed and practiced. And it's full of religious stuff. And we see this, they're directly quoting Jesus himself in the Didache. They're quoting scripture from the Jewish Bible. And they're displaying, look, this is how we practice our faith called the way. The way to life. And we don't want to live the way of death. So how do we distinguish between the two? Because there is a way to life and there is a way to death. So what's the way to life? Well, these are all the things. What's the way to death? Well, these are all the things. We now have religion. That's the first century church. See, one is the cure, but the other is the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. <laughs> I, I made a TikTok about this, uh, this part of the video, because Jesus explicitly tells us to do things. What is done is his work to form a contract, the, 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 the ability for us to sign on to the contract of salvation um, with God, with the, with the Father. That's what Jesus has done, but... There are still things we need to do in order to get our names onto that contract. I mean, even if you're a Protestant, you you agree with this because you believe that you need to have faith, right? You need to have faith in order to have your name on that contract uh, or on the book of life, we'll say, right? So that's the thing you need to do. Now, hold on. You might say, like, that's a thing that God gives us. Well, yeah, it is a thing God gives you, and you, you still need to have it because some people don't. And this is what this is what differentiates the saved from the unsafe, the people who are on the way to life and people who are on the way to death, right? Uh, otherwise, if we just say Jesus and only Jesus and nothing else, well, then everyone's saved, right? No, you need faith as well. You need faith as well as Jesus in order to have Jesus' action, complete action of creating the possibility for that contract to be signed by you, we need to have faith in order to include ourselves in that. So that's an addition. So now where the early church would go even further with that is you also need baptism. You also need to not commit mortal sins. Sins that Paul describes in Galatians cut you off from inheriting the kingdom. Or in 1 John, when the apostle John says that uh, there are there are sins that are not deadly, but there are sins that are deadly and kill you spiritually. What do you make of that? So there are things we need to do for salvation. But that doesn't contradict the perseverance of Christ in us. Because God has chosen us, and even if we fall away, he will bring us back. That's the point of him being the shepherd. Because sheep don't just stay in the pen constantly, like we 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 unless you're one of my good sheep, hit that uh, subscribe button and uh, check out my Patreon uh, at patreon.com/goodsheep94, and you can uh, register for the pen. You can stay in the pen, <laughs> you know, right? So, yeah, if you commit a sin that kills your relationship with God, you can get back to it. And it's not you alone that's doing it. You're actually being empowered by the Spirit to get back, get your butt into confession uh, and be reconciled to God. Or do you think it was you that led yourself into the baptismal waters that washed away your sin? No, it was the Holy Spirit that brought you in there. Because God, he whom God foreknew, he predestined, and he, him who he predestined, he, he, he saved, and he, he justified, I should say, and he who just... Who he justified, he will glorify. So, yeah, we're on this dramatic journey of being in and out and in and out. 
But if you're a chosen person of God, your name is going to get on that paper and you're going to be like, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but I often have believed in my Protestant history that salvation is a one-time event. Um, whereas in scriptures, in, in, in Paul specifically, he describes that salvation is a process. He even explicitly says that we are closer to our salvation than when we were than when we first heard the gospel. He includes himself on that. And and the point is this point of salvation is actually on judgment day. Judgment day is when you're saved. Judgment day is the day of salvation. When you achieve that destiny that God has predestined you for, right? So anyways, I don't know how I got on that huge rant, but um Maybe we'll rewind a bit. But one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion right. says do. Says do. Jesus, Jesus says, done. says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Jesus says uh, son and friend to people who have identified themselves to Jesus as their slave. Like you read the epistles. They constantly refer to themselves as bond servants or slaves to Christ. Now, Jesus does call the 12 disciples his friends. Um, but again, he also explicitly says, I call you this because you, you, you do what I say. So if, we're, if we, are, we are only called friends of Christ by presenting ourselves to him as his slaves. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Again, it's like, what what are you bound to and free from? Because you're always bound to something and free from not that thing, right? So if you're free from sin, then you're bound to Christ. And the whole Christian life is choosing that every day, day after day after day. His grace, his grace is new every day, right? Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Cue the epic Christianity music. is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness. Well, yeah, God searched for us and we should be searching for him. Like that's, that's fine. I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Forgiveness is my own, not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while Ooh. being murdered, I'm just he yelled, Father, now. forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he... Maybe not you. Maybe. Nothing helpful there. Just maybe. <laughs> Buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. Well, what's the it? What's the it? Again, like, if, if literally it is finished, it being salvation for all people, you don't need to do anything at all, well, then you don't need to believe. You, you just live your life sinfully and comfortably however you like and not even believe in Jesus and God. You can be an atheist, you can be a pagan, you can be a Hindu, you can be a Muslim and be presented with the message of Christ and say, nah, I'm going to keep doing my own thing and then just show up to heaven and be like, oh, yeah, sweet, we're all here. And we're talking universalism here at that point. But obviously, as Christians, we're not universalists. There is a standard. And as a Protestant, you would at least admit that it's um, at least believing, right? So now we're adding to Jesus. Uh, so, yes, it is finished. What What is finished? The it is the contract created. Like, that, that's what I want you to think. The What Jesus did on the cross was he enabled the ability for us to go to, to get to God, okay? But we still need to get to God, right? And that's what the whole Christian life lived is for. Oh, man, I've just, I've repeated myself enough. What's, what's the end of this?
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Yes, but Paul would also go on to say in Galatians, for example, that there is sin that disqualifies you from inheriting the kingdom of God. So, what, what, is, what is he referring to work here? Um, scholars have recently discovered, uh, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, excuse me, that Paul's bashing of religious works here is in relation to the ceremonial laws uh, of the Old Covenant. Not all of the mor- not not the moral code of the of the old covenant, but the ceremonial code of the old covenant, the ceremonial works of the old covenant, which include you know ideas like if I have a clean cup, no, if I have an unclean cup and a clean jar of water, and I pour that clean jar of water into an unclean cup, oops, now my jar of water is no longer clean. Because there is a connection between the water being poured between the unclean vessel and the clean vessel. So now the unclean makes the clean tainted. That's what Paul's talking about. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we, 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 only, we only know this confidently because of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, uncovering some works by the Essenes. Because Paul's phrase, works of the law, is, very, is a very unique phrase. And it doesn't make sense. If you interpret it to mean all the works of the Old Covenant law, that doesn't make sense because Paul again goes on to describe sin that kills you and sin that disqualifies you from from God's kingdom. And the early church was incredibly advocatious. They were huge advocates of the Ten Commandments, even keeping Sabbath. Sabbath's one of those things that like no evangelical Christian really most of the most part the little ones I know don't really keep and don't intend on keeping because it's old covenant. It's like we have nine commandments. Even even Sunday, it's like, oh, we, we work on Sunday. We do chores on Sunday, I should say. We may not make money on Sunday, but we do chores. It's like, no, that's that's not part of the vision of the church. Like you're supposed to take Sunday off. Why not Saturday? Why did it change? That's a whole other video, but there is a reason. Point being, Jesus created a religion. Jesus loves religion. And uh, he established people in that religion, a.k.a. the apostles, to take care of it while he's away and gave them a way to create successors that could take over that task through the ages. We call them the bishops. And that's how we are held accountable with each other in unity practically speaking, in a physical way, to following the religion that Jesus started is by clinging to the teachings of the united bishops. At least that's my understanding of it. Makes total sense to me. Let me know. So that was my reaction, my long reaction to why I hate religion but love Jesus. And it's a perfect segment, segue, I should say, perfect segue into apostolic succession why do catholics believe in apostolic succession well let me tell you so this was part of my journey in becoming catholic when i was reading in early church history this unanimous idea that in order for you to be considered part of the church you had to be under the shepherding stewardship of a bishop, okay? This is not the same thing as Paul's whole argument with like, oh, we say we're of Paul and, we, and the others say we're of Apollos. That's not what that is. That was, um, Paul was addressing cult of personalities because, and, that, and that's not what we're addressing here. The point is, as an early Christian, and I'm talking like this is more of a more developed in like before the f- before the fourth century and after the first right, um, but yeah, the the idea was in the, in the early church that for you to be recognized as part of the church, you part of the family. Well, 
can you identify um, dad, right? Father, <laughs> the bishop, right? Um, otherwise, like, no, you're actually not part of the church because you're just living by your own rules. And like, we have this whole thing that we're kind of unanimous about for the most part, and some things we're not. And if we're not unanimous about it, then we'll have a council and talk things through and decide what we actually believe, like the Trinity, like the biblical canon, like the two natures of Christ, right? So we're it's a team effort here, and you need to be part of the team. And how do you know you're part of the team? Well, that's my bishop. And why is that significant? Because when Jesus was walking around with his friends, aka the disciples, he gave them, as described in Matthew, and I also, I believe, Mark or Luke as well, the keys, the keys to the kingdom. Uh, the, these are symbolic keys of authority, right? Actually, are they only given to to Peter? There's, there's, there's a little bit of nuance here. It's either the keys were only given to Peter or the task of binding and loosing was only given to Peter. I think only the keys were given to Peter, but the task of binding and loosing were given to all of the apostles. Fact check me on that. I can't remember. The point is, though, whether you're Orthodox or Catholic and you disagree on the papacy, that's not what we're talking about. But the point is, is that the bishops had the ability, Jesus gave them, to bind and loose, okay? So this is rabbinical language. This was a rabbinical concept that they had authoritative teaching to interpret the scriptures and to... Uh, bind their followers to certain practices or loose loose them from certain practices right and so this is what jesus this is a this is a gift a spiritual gift that jesus has given uh his 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 disciples who become the apostles right well the very fact that these are keys and this is a a concept that is being taken from the old covenant because this was the case from the you know the 72 elders 70 or 72 on mount sinai all the way to the sanhedrin and the pharisees in jesus day uh jesus actually acknowledges their infallible teaching of this of the of the of the hebrew scriptures he uh he says that they sit on the seat of moses and do everything they tell you to do um but do not do as they do, because what they do is different than what they tell you to do, right? They're they're hypocrites, is what Jesus is saying about these religious people, even though they're false religious people, um, not truly religious people. Anyways, so Jesus carries this over into his new priesthood, which is the apostles. And so this instinctively is assumed by the apostles and their immediate followers that Someone has to fill the role once me, the the apostle, dies. And we see this immediately with, with Judas, actually. Before the Holy Spirit is given, what do they do? They cast lots in order to select a successor for the least of the 12 apostles. Because that was a spot that needed to be filled. I actually gets that. It says that in Acts. Like, they saw that it was, a, it was something that needed to be done. They needed to fill this position. And so... The reason they don't cast lots later once they start dying is because now they have the Holy Spirit. This is after Pentecost. They have the Holy Spirit to decide as uh, as a union of bishops who is going to succeed succeed them in that in that role. And the early church understood this, and this carried all the way through. Um, now, I will I will say that what is a bishop. Um, also known as a episcopoi, episcopon. I can't. I'm, my Greek is terrible, but the, that's essentially the word episcopon. Um, it was a a word used to describe a sort of overseeing role of a church family, of a local church family. And originally, it started with just being this person who would make sure that the rich people were taking care of the poor people, so that. These funds that everyone in this community was being taken care of to distribute the the the, the riches that were collected adequately, so that everyone was taken care of and all of their needs were taken care of. This this was the original perceived role of the episcopon, okay, the overseer. Then, 
as it grew, as the church grew, this overseer started to become um, a representative of the church community to the secular world outside of, you know, the church walls. They needed to be representatives. Uh, and also to ensure that people were practicing what was being taught in the Christian tradition and that what was being taught was in line with what they inherited, right? So we've evolved now just from like an administrative role to a um, overseeing, a theologically overseeing role, right? Uh, spoken theology and lived theology. Kind of like a like we're now we're getting close to you know our modern concept of a, of a bishop, but it was it didn't take too long though it was it was before like the third century it was like in the second century or early third century, where we start seeing now uh, monarchal bishops who didn't just oversee one church but oversaw the right practice and the right teaching of a bunch of local churches, okay? And this then became, you know, the church, these became the churches of Rome, the church, uh, the churches of Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria, okay? So it didn't take too long for this, this to form. What, what still passed on was this successorship uh, of, of, of the apostles, Although those immediate successors, let's say, weren't necessarily bishops, okay, at first, right? Because that the role of bishop was still developing. But the point is, is that the that the successor to the apostles had very specific abilities, such as giving people the Holy Spirit. We, we read, I believe, in Acts 5 or 15, one of those two, maybe 15. No, I think it's Acts 5, where... Um, People are baptized, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. So they call Peter and John all the way from Jerusalem to come to Samaria in order to give them the Holy Spirit, right? So not everyone can just grant people the Holy Spirit. You need the apostles, and this was a special task by, again, the, the tradition that Jesus carried on from the old to the new. Um, this was this had to be done by the successors, the people who they the apostles themselves established as their successors. And for for Peter, we have a lineage. We have a clear lineage. Um, for the other apostles, we don't unfortunately we don't have a clear lineage. But this is um, apostolic successorship. That the in the early centuries, we had a different timeline, a different. Um, building of this role of the bishop, and a, and that was separate from the lineage of the apostles. However, uh, it didn't take too long for those two things to be the same, uh, to be equated, to be synonymous, because, well, who's going to lead the church? Well, it's the people with the most spiritual authority, <laughs> obviously, right? So, um, yeah, I think what we're really just talking about is a difference in the actual day-to-day -day roles of a bishop then versus a bishop now, right? Um, so that's apostolic successorship, and the, the it begs the question, well, who are the bishops now? Who are the people that have that blessing, who have that anointing that Christ established when he carried it over from the old into the new? Who has that? Well, some would say we all do. And in some sense, that's that's accurate because we are all priests. We share in Christ's priesthood uh, when we are in good faith and good standing um, through our baptism, uh, as the Catholic Church teaches. Through our baptism, we participate in the prof prophethood, saint um, priesthood, and kinghood of Christ. However, we're little p priests. Priests. <laughs> we're little p priests. Um, whereas there are big p priests and there are big B bishops, right? And these are these are in regards to the roles, specific roles and specific tasks that the bishops and priests have. So that's that's apostolic succession. And hopefully that clears some things up for the Protestants that may be watching. Pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, and part of why I became a Catholic because, you know, um, if, if this is what the early church believed, and I want to be an early church kind of Christian, uh, because the early church is most close 
in terms of, you know, an accurate understanding of what Jesus taught, then I got to find my bishop. Who's my bishop? Where is he? You know, Jesus said that he would build his church and he'd never leave it. And so why would he start something and then let it fade away? Who's my bishop? Well, that would be Poppy Pope over in Rome. Um, because Martin Luther left. Anyways, down another rabbit hole. But I hope you enjoyed this uh, segment of Good Sheep and this whole episode of Good Sheep. Um, the best thing you can do, I think, is just watch another video. <laughs> Go watch another video and share it. Click the notification bell for my next upload. And subscribe if you haven't already. Give me a thumbs up if you liked it. And give me a thumbs down if you didn't. And please participate in the comments. It would be awesome to hear your thoughts on all of this stuff. And you can follow me on other uh, media, such as Instagram. Uh, my stories are quite awesome, I believe, uh, where I also post from TikTok. And TikTok is where kind of my comedic stuff is. And I got to post more on that. And finally, Patreon. Once again, I just established it. Three bucks a month at patreon.com slash goodsheep94. Um, that'll get you into the into the sheep pen, which is this little exclusive club where we throw around ideas with each other and get some personal Jacob time, if, that, if you care about that. And as things grow, I will be growing. I'll just... Things will be growing, uh, is all I can say. I already, like I said, second show, got a way better camera. Next show, I'll probably adjust the uh, the set a bit. Difficult, as I am busy with my master's program. Um, but yeah, help me grow. If, if you like this content, help me grow it. I'd really appreciate it. So, yeah. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye.